Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. The fans have won already. What a spectacular week of competition we have seen. On this episode, it's Flying Ryan Ayler and National Dragsters' Kevin McKenna. And there is not a happier human being on planet Earth than the woman in that Pro Stock car. We're talking Pro Stock motorcycle and back-to-back races at Indy. Goodbye, Snake, and hello, Ace! This is the NHRA Insider. And the wildest day in the history of this category is hey, finally complete. The NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, back after a couple of races at Indy that brought the NHRA Drag Racing Series, NHRA Mellow Yellow Drag Racing Series, Back into the active world of American motorsports, had a couple of really big weekends, really big shows on both FS1 and the Fox Broadcast Network. Uh, great ratings on all the fronts. We were up year over year on all that stuff and certainly uh, showing the fact that there was a lot of pent-up interest, a lot of pent-up demand for NHRA drag racing out there. Today's show is going to be kind of cool. We have Ryan Ayler, who uh, obviously a great story from the first weekend, the E3 Spark Plugs, NHRA Nationals. He won the Pro Stock Motorcycle category. And, you know, I think some people kind of would say against all odds, but when we talk to Ryan, you're going to understand why that's really not not the way it goes. It is not against all odds. And in fact, this is a program that has been years in the making and continues to evolve uh, really race to race. Um, Ryan was a candidate a few years ago for the NHRA Road to the Future Award, the the Rookie of the Year, if you will. Um inexplicably he did not get that award I, I i am not a voter for it uh so i guess therefore i can be uh, unbridled or unguarded in my opinion uh, he should have earned that he should have won that award hands down that year if we look at the uh, the other folks he was in there with not to demean anybody and certainly not taken away from the voters that voted to somebody else but um i'm not quite sure how that didn't happen for him but as you'll learn when we talk to ryan um I'm not going to say he's a chip on his shoulder because he doesn't. It's it's more classy than that, but he has a lot of pride. He has a lot of vision, and he certainly has the nose-to-the-grindstone mentality that one needs to succeed at what is the highest level of motorcycle drag racing in the world, and he did that hands down. He did a great job. Uh, his father, Brad, was at home. He's the engine builder, and you'll learn all about the operation when we talk to him. It's going to be great. The second guest will be National Dragster Senior Editor Kevin McKenna, and we're going to talk to Kevin because he was covering from the press box and in the pits both of these first two events, and I really want to talk to him about his impressions, see if kind of his impressions line up with mine, the way things looked and felt, um, not just from the press box, but really down in that pit area. Uh, the sentiment shared by a lot of the racers, the folks that we were, we were able to see, uh, it was different, of course. Obviously, the NHRA put into place a load of procedures to concentrate on uh, enhancing or providing, I guess we can call it, a safer environment for the fans, for the media, for the racers, for the uh, crew, men and women that work on the cars, everybody involved. So, I'm sure if you watched the show, you know what the procedures were, but basically I can tell you what, kind of what my days were. Uh, as an example, we would have to go to a predetermined check-in station before we entered the racetrack. We would get our temperature taken. We would have to uh, basically sign a document that said, hey, uh, we have not had the uh, symptoms or anything for 14 days. We feel fine, and we would go in there so long as our temperatures were correct, and thankfully uh, we didn't run into that issue at all this weekend. Um, after that, you know, everybody had to have a facial covering on. There was uh, hand sanitizer literally all over the racetrack. You couldn't walk 20, 30, 40, 50 feet without uh, getting hand sanitizer, seeing it. If you wanted to use it, it was certainly there. And then in the grandstands, you saw that there was a limited fan capacity, uh, limited numbers of tickets sold, and those fans were spread out in those big, giant aluminum grandstands at Lucas Oil Raceway, Indianapolis. So 
it did. And then, of course, uh, doing our job in the in the announcing booth. Um, we had masks on in the booth. You saw us on television with the masks on. Uh, NHRA provided us some masks that we wore. Um, I did transition to a uh, one of the blue kind of disposable style masks for when we were actually uh, kind of off camera calling the race. Seemed to be a little less uh, interruption in terms of sound on that. We worked with that week after week, you know, week one week to the next we made adjustments but we were all wearing our masks and doing what we needed to do to maintain distance you saw tony and i not just six feet away for the open of the show we maintained that distance the whole time and you know it may seem like overkill but the fact of the matter is uh, the fact of the matter is we all want to continue to do this and we all want to do it in in a way that allows us to continue racing and you know tim wilkerson and several of the other racers over the course of the two races were uh really forward with their thoughts like hey we want to keep doing this so please let's follow the rules and and let's do what we can to to try to keep everybody in a good way so it was uh two exciting drag races to be at um certainly because of their historic implications of us kind of coming back into the fold and coming back into action in terms of a series uh they were two interesting feeling national events because we basically ran pro cars only we did have some very limited sportsman action at the first and second races including at the second race a a bracket race that drew out some of the coolest bracket cars i've ever seen i mean there was a field of bracket cars hundred some cars there there was so much neat stuff in the bracket race field when i was uh, rolling out of the tower on saturday evening after qualifying i walked down the row of uh, racers that were waiting to come around the corner in the staging lanes it was just talking to a bunch of racers and, and complimenting them on on cool stuff that i saw wheel stands uh there was a dude that had an i, I forgive me i forget his name a guy that had a, a a body like a 70s early 70s duster that had a hemi in it candy apple red paint had gold anodized wheels in that rake of an early pro stock car so great appreciation for the racers that came out to compete on that side of things as well and then on the racetrack it was spectacular i mean it really was spectacular competition and one of the big stories of the first race of course john force racing was not present john force racing was not present at the second race and everyone's like why don't you tell us why they're not here and the answer is the team has made no official statement they obviously have their reasons for not being there but we don't have them to tell you so for us to go on national television and make something up effectively or just give our opinion as to why they're not there doesn't do anybody any good it doesn't do us any good to say something like that and then be wrong about it and then have the team have to refute it um it doesn't do i don't think it does anybody a service when the team is ready to say something and reveal their plans they will and to this point i think the the end lesson here is the fact that we had great races and we want to have races with john force racing of course we do it'd be idiotic to say we didn't but the sport of nhra drag racing is not predicated on the presence of one team never has been and it can't so we want john force racing back i want him back as a as a fan of drag racing of course i want the guy at the racetrack i want to see Brady at the racetrack i want to see austin Prock. i want to see robert height i want that happening at the racetrack but on the integrity journalistic side of things i'm not going to stand in front of america and make something up or give my my opinion as to why they're not there not having all the facts so that's why we didn't say anything on the show particularly in in depth about why they weren't there um we hope to see him again and we hope to hear from the team soon that's basically all we can say and that's basically what i'm saying here when we look at the second race weekend uh obviously we made it oh so close to finishing that race all that was left in terms of our uh premier competition our mellow yellow and lucas oil style competition um was the finals and those finals are going to be amazing 
in top fuel, you have TJ Zizzo and you have Justin Ashley in top fuel final. You get Beckman and you have Hagen in the, in the funny car final. We can go right down the line. Pro Modified, great final there coming up with Chad Green and going to take on uh, Jason Scruggs. Legend and Chad Green drove both Nitro Funny Car and Pro Mod at the race. He drove that Pro Mod the wheels off at Dean Marinas was leading the tune-up on that car. They were doing a killer job. I know they wanted the final that day because they felt like they really were um, were killing them, and they were. And then in the Factory Stock Showdown final, it is a pair of Ford Mustangs with Chris Holbrook and Drew Skillman. So we're going to go through a lot of this stuff when I talk to Kevin McKenna a little bit later in the show, but I just wanted to kind of share my impressions and feelings of these first two races, and um, I think they were very, very important. I, I felt like that first race was probably the most important drag race I had ever been to, just in the sense of getting us back on track and did it look and feel different to start with yes when they fired their first pair of cars up on Sunday morning did all that go away yes I could have been wearing a hockey helmet and it would have felt the same I mean it was awesome to see top fuel cars running see the competitive spirit of uh, of the people out there and and watch the kind of uh, joy and despair that comes with each and every round on a race day great fields for qualifying as well so I think um I think I'm going to leave it there, and we'll catch back up with Kevin McKenna a little bit later in the show. But first, we're going to welcome Ryan Ayler. He's going to be our first guest here on this episode of the NHRA Insider. Enjoy this conversation with Ryan Ayler. All right, so joining us for our first guest here on this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast, he is the Pro Stock Motorcycle winner at the E3 Spark Plugs NHRA Nationals, Flying Ryan Ayler. How you doing, man? Great. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing really well, and uh, it has been a, a whirlwind couple of weeks here in the sport of drag racing, and, and obviously your story is one of the ones that's at the top of the list, so I definitely wanted to catch up with you. I uh, have had a lot of fun following on social media the adventures of Wally since he left the racetrack on Sunday, so get us, <laughs> get us caught up to speed of where he's been. Well, you know, first thing, uh, we had to take him right away from the track to uh, almost had to take him underneath the motorhome because we couldn't even get off the property at Indy because we had a jack that was stuck down, uh, and uh, we had to take the damn thing off. And Mike from Modern Outlaw came over, and we're laying underneath the, the rig and covered in hydraulic fluid. And he says, uh, you need anything? I said, yeah, a Sawzall. He goes, well, just, just one second. He ran to the truck, and he had a Sawzall in my hands in about 30 seconds, which I thought was pretty handy. Nice. You know, so, so we leave the track uh, uh, in, uh, in our typical fashion, you know, uh, dirty and covered in oil and what have you. And, <laughs> and uh, we went to uh, Pizza King. I've been ta- bragging about Pizza King forever. Since I'm a Hoosier, you know, it's like the – the the childhood memories of going to the pizza king with my my grandparents and whatnot and uh so we go to a pizza king and uh i tipped all the kids working there twenty dollars a piece and said you're going to put up with my crazy ass for the next hour because i'm gonna be i'm gonna be hard to handle (laughs) (laughs) and uh so we enjoyed our pizza king and uh it told everybody uh about the big win and they were they were somewhat impressed i guess you know and uh then we headed home, and uh, Monday was uh, was awesome, but it was almost like someone was playing a really bad joke on me, you know, because my phone rings a lot in the heating and cooling business as it is, especially on a Monday, and then you, you uh, 
put that together with winning the uh, the race over the weekend, and it was just suddenly, just like, like I said, a bad joke. My phone just rang off the hook all day long. About ready to so, melt out of your pocket, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, after that, we uh, we continued to celebrate. We had some friends and family. We t- went and saw my grandparents. They're both uh, my biggest fans, Kenny and Lois Ayler. They're uh, also from Indiana, uh, from Lafayette. They worked at uh, Purdue University and were big sports fans. So now as they're 91 and 92, uh, they're, uh, they continue to be big, uh, big sports fans and, uh, watching their grandson win and they were just, uh, ecstatic. So I had to take them over the Wally to show them what it was like. And, um, same thing. My parents, uh, did not join us at the races. Everyone's like, I just can't believe your, you know, your mom and your dad weren't there. I said, you know, I guarantee my dad was in the engine dyno cell working, <laughs> Up until about we about second round, I bet after we saw second round, he may have taken a break to to you know try to uh, make sure he didn't miss anything. So um, they were going to meet us at the at the shop, but we didn't get back till about midnight or one. So we celebrated the next day, and then it just kind of goes on from there. We had a little, another little family celebration. We took him to a, a restaurant that we just did a full heating and cooling system in that a friend of mine owns, and. And uh, we just kept carrying him everywhere. Now, now I think he's got a good resting place. He's here on my desk. We're going to start building our very first trophy case to to, nice. to start the collection, and uh, ready for you know a couple weeks ahead of us for to get our next one. You know, and and to me, it's it's really neat. You know, the, the first win thing is one thing, but when when you see the the level that it kind of touches somebody, or how it touches, and what it means to your family. I mean, the fact you have both your grandparents uh, to be able to watch that is is an amazing thing because that's not something a lot of people can say. And obviously, they've seen you from infancy to this moment, so that's a that's an incredible kind of circle to close up. Um, I want to talk about your program, man, because it's been. It's been a really pleasurable thing to watch over the last few years. And, you know, you showed up when you first came out. You had a good bike. You were riding the bike well. But we've watched this incremental improvement, and it's really come in your own hands, you and your dad and your team. So I want to talk about how you've taken this program to what is now a contending race-winning program. Well, it, it's a very systematic plan. You, you know coming into this that you're going to be uh, on a very long path. And the journey of making it from – the bottom to the top uh some people just you know will, will never make it there and then some people um have a plan that seems to uh to really work out and you have different types of plans of, of course our plan being all in-house it's something that we've always prided ourselves on for forever that we're going to do this on our own so that we're not at the mercy of somebody else and uh, we're just very fortunate enough to have the technology and the experience to be able to make it happen so that that sounds, you know, like uh, we're a big scientist operation here, and that we're yeah we got that we we knew we were going to be winners, but you know when we did this in the pro mod Harley, um, for me that was the first time as a, a young man that I was able to to see this kind of full circle operation of having these dreams and hopes and and going out on a limb to make it happen. And then experiencing being way behind and, and getting your butt kicked by all the guys that had been out there for a long time and then reeling them all in. So the process is, was exactly the same. Um, it's just whenever you're trying to catch a group of people that have been at it for a long time, there has to be an edge that you have that allows you to to catch them and reel them in faster and then, then one day pass them. And that, you know, that was our... our are doing of the pro mod we i watched it come in and go uh back of the pack middle of the pack winning rounds 
winning a championship and then being almost undefeated the final season I was out there. And at that point, that's when I saw what we could do as a team and knowing that if we, you pick this apart, um, just like, a like I said, a scientific project, you know, that you, uh, you have these expectations. And if you follow this, this channel of how to get things done, you, you should be able to get there. Well, it's uh, definitely uh, way more challenging in the NHRA. The, the resources that everyone has and, and their experience level, I mean, they're the best of the best. So to be able to do what we're doing and as quick as we're doing it, I think that's what's really impressing a lot of people is that they say, wow, you know, how, how is he doing this? Well, we work extremely hard. And we, uh, my dad has a lot of resources of, of experience in the, the V-twin racing world. And that's uh, that on top of me being really uh, able to tune the bike as well as now. I think the real combination that you're seeing that's making us win is we've got Scotty, who's a friend of mine, who's, who's just a great person, who is helping the team tremendously. Terry, who's now the crew chief, works at Liberty Gears who is also another great person and no one's trying to tell anybody how to do something. And no one's like, I really want you to call so-and-so he's going to help you out with this. We all just sit down, look at the data, work really well together and try not to forget anything because a lot of our shortcomings in the last few years was that those little things that kept happening that would cost us a round or cost us a round of qualifying, which then, puts us where we don't want to be matched up for first round and makes it that much harder. So now that all the pieces of the puzzle are kind of coming together on the logistical side of it, now this is when it's going to get real interesting is when Brad gives us that next level of horsepower and we have all the ducks in a row and suddenly we're a major threat. Yeah. It's, and like you said, it's, it's very systematic and that's what I appreciate about it. And had you not had the experience you did in the in the pro mod side of the Harley world, would this process be different? Would it be more disheartening? Because I, I, th- I feel like that experience proved to you that you could do it. And I guess maybe without it, would this be different? It would be extremely different. I mean, when you enter into a program on your own and you you haven't been in a professional program, I can't tell you how many times that you smash your hand with a hammer, metaphorically. You know, you, you put your head in a vice and just squeeze it until your eyes want to pop out of your head because the stress of trying to overcome all these problems, because the whole thing is just one big, complicated problem. It's Is it ever fully optimum? Does anyone make a perfect pass with perfect performance? No. I don't think that it's ever possible. So the road to getting to the top is a very painful and enduring process that uh, when you're doing it all on your own, I can't tell you how many times. Like I just laugh at all these things that happen now because as long as my bike is not on fire and burning to the ground, you know, I'm really not too surprised, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, we've had so many things that, I mean, just the other day, we bring the bike home from four rounds of competition. Well, we dyno the motor. It made one and a half, almost two more horsepower than when it left out the door. So we brought it home in better performance than it left, which has now been kind of par for the course with a couple of our engines in the program. But, you know, when you start to get to the 
first, second, third, four rounds of a, of a race day, some things get slightly missed because the amount of time that you have between rounds is, is now diminished as you go on and you don't have time to check all these things out. So I'm like, oh, well, look at that. There's a bolt about ready to fall out. Oh, there's a wire. They got frayed pretty good. Oh, yeah. I'm, glad we, I'm glad we didn't have to go five rounds because we probably had a motor laying on the ground, you know? So what, um, you know, what did this mean to your dad? Because there was a great expression a guy, a guy told me one time. This is years ago. He said, you know, in drag racing, he said, if you want to impress a lot of people, grab the steering wheel and if you want to impress yourself you grab a wrench and uh, your dad yeah. your dad strikes me as the guy who, who always grabs for the wrench and what does this mean to him because it has to be monumental for him well i think that we've all waited for this moment because now when you we line up to race last year we think we can win um we feel like we can win we're getting more comfortable we're, we're way more competitive now the feeling comes over us is that we know we can win and the whole point of us being here is to, to win and to show our performance. So now he understands because he's seen it firsthand with the previous pro mod Harley that now he knows that he keeps giving me the tools that they're going to go into good use and we're going to make more performance. So um, that's that's probably one of the most exciting things as well as the fact that we've been chasing this dream um, for so long. And uh, he's not a real emotional guy, though. You're not going to get him all all, uh, teared up. You know, he gives me a fist, gives me a fist bump, you know, and a hug. And, uh, and then we just start talking about the, you know, what happened and look at the data and we start, you know, basically we're working in the engine dyno and, and moving on to the next, to the next wave. So it, it was very cool though, because, as I grew up and I've basically, I seen that this was my dad's dream, but it couldn't be fulfilled until we became a team. So now it's our dream and to put our dream in the winner circle at NHRA and take home a Wally is, uh, something I don't think a lot of people can say, especially in a father son relationship. No, that's, uh, and that, you know, that also to me, it, it kind of brings the story even to that, uh, you know, next level, so to speak. You know, what does this mean for you in terms of competition now? Because honestly, I think we all know how the psychology of this sport works. And when you roll into the gate next time, you're not just a guy who might win a race. You now officially are a guy who has won races. So uh, that changes the way people race you. Yeah, and it feels really good as a rider because you uh, you can really – start to look over in that other lane and the feeling is completely different. You, you look over and suddenly it's, it's game on, you know, I'm going to, it doesn't matter if, if, what the weather's like or the wind is like, or the track condition that the mindset is I'm beating that other person in the other lane. And that's the hardest part I think to take for me as a tuner, as the rider, as the, the team manager and and all of this and then to put the helmet on and then just make sure that you're just the rider it's pretty hard you're rolling up there you're going oh did i get the clutch right i get the you know i need to take some fuel out and you're trying to think of all this stuff and then suddenly you've got to get switched over to where i am just now the rider and it's time to to bring it yeah, it's it's a neat thing. I mean, it's it's a neat it's a neat thing to wear six hats and then have to throw all those hats aside and just put a helmet on and forget all the rest of that stuff and really have complete confidence in what you're doing. Well, it felt like that a lot in that last round. There, it was probably one of the first. I mean, it, it, when I did it, when I, I got a lot of confidence out of the semifinals and laying down low ET of that uh, that round against that uh, magnitude of competitors, and then to race Matt 
and Matt has uh, sent me packing many times now. So when we had the clutch drag problem, which I think everyone pretty much saw, which was pretty ironic, you know, is that uh, Terry mentioned it before we left to go up to the line, and I said, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, and it wasn't fine. <laughs> it was it was definitely pulling, pulling me through the lights, and it was definitely moving the bike when I'd rev it up, but I still, at that exact moment, knowing what had to happen, I said, I looked over at Terry right when we're on the line, I said, I got this. I said, I, and I yelled it again, I said, I got this, you know, and I just uh, threw the switch, and it was uh, it was time to to no matter what race him and give it my best. So, and for the folks listening that don't know specifically what you're talking about, I do want to get into this because it is it is in in my mind the most incredible part of the story that you're able to manage this situation as well as it was. So, uh, in layman's terms, basically the bike was trying to pull itself through the beams, and you knew that if you had tried to go through a normal staging procedure, you were going to roll that thing through a half a day before the before the tree even moved, right? Sure, it's exactly right. You know, you have your hand on the clutch lever, and you should be in a complete neutral state. But when you rev it up, or not even rev it up at all, just at idle, it has uh, it is pulling the bike, trying to take it forward, and uh, it's uh, you're pretty helpless at that point, as far as like you said, a normal procedure goes. So basically, the way you combat this. In, in your situation, and I'm going to say this probably works one out of every six million times someone tries it, but you had you had one option, which was to leave that thing at idle until like the last nanosecond. So obviously you had confidence in your ability to do it, but where did that even come from? I just I've experienced it before uh, on my other on my other bike in in the all Harley days, and uh, I don't remember if it was as successful as it was uh, this time out. But uh, I think a lot of people gave me credit for the 01 light. And when I came back and looked at all the data, I went, you know what? I didn't cut an 01 light. The bike did. <laughs> right. And that's why my ET was a 697 instead of like a 689 because the tune-up was there. I, I, I saw the tune-up in the semifinals. And then it was going to be more aggressive. And then I'm going, ah, 697? Well, well, you know, what happened? Well, the 111, 60 foot. Well, it's because I took off probably, uh, I didn't probably pop the clutch until I was six inches out front of the beams. And that, there's where all the ET went. And as far as the, cutting the light, I mean, it was just, uh, it was experience. It was a little bit of luck. It was uh, doing everything I could to try to, to minimize it taking me down the track when I didn't want it to, you know, so it just kind of all worked out. Yeah, and the experience end of that is is to me the experience and then the uh, the uh, kind of acuity to understand exactly what the problem was and have you know a very last minute plan in place that uh, that certainly worked out in your favor. You know, if was there any time I guess over the last I don't know four or five years where did you kind of know you guys had turned a corner? You know, I, I know you know you've been you've been deep in some of the four wide races and stuff, but was there a moment for you that you left the racetrack on a Sunday and said, okay, like now we've we've turned. You know, we've made it around turn three here. We're headed for the home stretch. I honestly thought it was Pomona last fall. Uh, leaving Pomona, I felt like if they would have had a race that next weekend, I, I would have won it. And uh, that was just uh, how I felt as a rider. How I, When you sit on the bike, I think the first, I don't know, 50 passes or 100 or whatever, you're a little worried about, you know, you just had the wheel off the thing. You just had all the brakes off of it. You, you put it all back on. Did I get that tight? Is that that is zero, right? My dial indicator or my caliper is not off. It's not lying to me, right? You know, is you know. So a lot of things go through your head as you uh, you pop the clutch, and uh, 
then that starts to go away and you can start to focus on, well, I'm pretty confident the bike's going to go straight. I'm pretty confident in my tuning. Uh, and then you start honing in the reaction time and then suddenly it just becomes a part of you. And that's the coolest thing I feel about motorcycles. And I don't, I've raced cars. I don't have a ton of experience. I mean, I ET raced for several years and all that, but I wouldn't say that I have a ton of experience in a pro car. So I don't know if in a car you ever become one on a motorcycle you sit on it and you are part of it you are part of the chassis when you say i want the bike to go right you just kind of nudge your chin a little bit to the right or push a little bit on the foot peg and it goes right or you shift you know you shift your weight just a little bit to the seat in a car you're sitting in the seat and you have the steering wheel and uh and i really feel like that's probably about it you know so um the motorcycle is so unique in the fact that uh you know, when I always, you know, I always talk about it is that I can't imagine going in a pro stock car and popping the clutch. I would feel like totally stress free, right? You know, because <laughs> when I get close to the wall, I'm myself is what's close to the wall. <laughs> they got at least a door and a frame in between them. You know, so totally yeah, different experience. Yeah, totally different experience. So yeah, it's just that turning point of when it became part of you, and now you know it, it is it is part of part of my soul and that when I go up there um, I'm very confident in my abilities and the bike's abilities so I guess to, to kind of uh, move to the final phase of this conversation uh, what's the next step I mean what's what for your team what for your dad building power kind of take me through what's going on at the shop right now and kind of what's the next phase of uh, flying Ryan's racing adventure well, having our engine dyno program just now launching is a pretty big deal because you you can't further i don't think a lot a lot further than where we are without it um there starts to become all of the different uh technology that is available to uh, to harness with the dyno as a tool bringing in um other specialized individuals whether it's ignition or it's fuel um and starting to analyze that um we're also continuously just reworking little little details of the engine um, obviously there's still some, some big advantages that some of the other teams may have with crankshaft technology. We're still running the original style crankshafts that came out with this program when the Buell V twins were developed Okay, so, and everyone would say, you know, they wanted to get away from that and we haven't yet been able to do that because just sake of time. Um, also my dad's specialty is he is a cylinder head builder and I have two brand new sets of cylinder heads in the shop that are completely untouched. So, uh, working with different cam profiles, cylinder head profiles, getting them on the engine dyno, really working over the, uh, the, the dyno as a tool and producing more horsepower and then putting it to the ground. And that's where we're headed. So, like I said, if, if you think we were, you know, competitive now, I can't wait to see where we are in a couple of years. No, it's great, man. It's a great story. It's uh, it's it's you're you're doing the thing that the people that sit on their couch and eat Doritos all day say is impossible, right? You're doing the thing that you're actually you've come into this thing with a long term plan. You've executed a long term plan. Uh, you do not drive your gold plated Bentley uh, back and forth to your your HVAC shop every day, and you're doing it with a lot of hard work and bravery and guts, and and it's just it's fantastic to watch. 
Well, I really appreciate everybody out there supporting me. I've had so many compliments this last week. We've had so many people that have watched me come up from where where we started and where where we're going, and and uh, they're uh, it's just amazing to see uh, the support you get when you're the underdog. And uh, I just can't wait to keep showing everybody that uh, we've got more out there to offer and that this is going to become a regular thing. Awesome. And you moved some merch this week, man. I saw the T-shirts. I saw it on your social media. It looks like you moved some T-shirts this week. Yeah, we're trying to move some shirts. We're trying to, to move this smile, uh, you know, create some more advertising <laughs> space on this on this bike, you know. Uh, we just never know. We might end up having like a big parachute that we drag behind it when we cross the finish line, you know, so we can really increase the advertising space. I sure would know it would help with those tiny little brakes that we got. We like to call them little <laughs> bicycle brakes, you know. Where should people be following you? <laughs> they should definitely be following me on, on our social media, on uh, Flying Ryan Racing, um, uh, dot com, as well as our, uh, Ryan Ayler on uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram. I think it's Flying Ryan PSM is our, is our handle. So uh, everybody out there that's been uh, giving me good plugs, greatly appreciate it. And uh, thank you, everyone. Ryan Ayler, your winner at the E3 Spark Plugs, NHRA, Nationals, and Pro Stock Motorcycle. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Look, look oh, forward thank to, you very much, yeah. Brian. Look forward to seeing you down the road. All right, thank you. All right, so after that great conversation with Ryan Ayler, we're rolling into conversation number two with National Dragster Senior Editor Kevin McKenna. How you doing, Kevin? I'm doing just fine. How about you? I'm doing good, man. And, uh, you know, not to double down on Ryan Ayler a little bit, but you have been the guy who's kind of been the lead on the Pro Stock Motorcycle class reporting for many years now. And I want you to give me your impression of him because I like talking to Ryan. Got a little swagger. They're doing it on their own. It's kind of a cool story. They are. And, and you know, uh, success in any class is really hard to come by. But the Pro Stock Motorcycle class especially, and if you're not doing, say, an engine leasing program with Vance and Hines or Matt Smith, you know, an established team, someone like that, the road becomes that much tougher. But that obviously didn't deter uh, the Ayler family. They, they've kind of done things their own way. And, you know, it's taken them a few years, but you could see the progress in steady steps. And finally, you know, in about, I guess, in his fourth year in the class, we've seen him win a race, and it's great. Uh, it, it's fantastic. Anytime you can see uh, a new winner, especially someone that's, uh, again, sort of done things their own way. Yeah, it's a cool story. And, uh, you know, the real reason I want to talk to you outside of uh, your opinions on Ryan Ayler, of course, are, uh, you know, we were both at the races. We were both at both of the, the E3 Spark Plugs race and then the Lucas Oil Summer Nationals. And, you know, I, I wanted your perspective because you've been around drag racing a long time. You've, you've seen it in multiple different prisms and forms and everything else. And for me, that first race, the E3 race, it felt very important to me. Like, that felt like maybe one of the most important drag races I was ever at. And I don't know if that struck you the same way. Absolutely. You know, they say you don't know what you got till it's gone. And when you are geared up for what, you know, should be a, a fantastic 2020 season, and then the rug gets pulled out from underneath you, and you go three months with virtually nothing, I think that, uh, you know, I, I don't think the perspective was lost on the number of people who were there who you know, realize that, yeah, it, it, the importance of being back at the track, back with your friends, doing what you enjoy doing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of that even um, was present at the second event. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you're trying to get back into something that resembles a normal routine. And while this was far from normal, you at least had some elements of, uh, you know, your, your your normal life as far as being back at the track, competing, um, it, it was just good to get things going again, and hopefully we created a little bit of momentum that 
uh, we can carry forward from this point on. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned it in the monologue opening the show, but I, I you know, we're all really happy with the viewership um, on FS1 and Fox over the two races was great. They were both positive, you know, year over year. The second one, uh, the Lucas Oil Summer Nationals was a blowout. I think it was 35 or 40% bigger audience than we had the same time last year. So there's definitely, definitely was pent up interest and uh, we tapped into it, which is a great thing. In terms of the competition on the racetrack, it was as entertaining as it's ever been, and I was I was interested to see how that would play out too. And I think we did see a little bit of rust, uh, not so much during the second qualifying session eliminations, but since most of the teams had made at least one test pass earlier in the you know the the weekend, so to speak, we didn't see as much as I would have expected. But you were at the test; I saw a lot of the test runs. Had we just pushed these cars off the trailer and put them into qualifying, it would have been it would have been entertaining, but it would have been bedlam. Yeah, it would have been bedlam. And, and you also have to remember, not only have you had team sideline for the better part of three to four months, but you have a whole new world now with just two qualifying sessions. So I think most crew chiefs have had to reevaluate their strategy, especially when it comes to qualifying, where you can't really go for the throat on Q1. Well, actually, you can, but you do so at your own peril. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, I think, has, has caused a little fundamental change in thinking among teams. Uh, a, a fundamental change in driving. You know, if the car hazes the tires, uh, I think the driver now is a lot more likely to go for it to try to get some sort of an ET on there. And, uh, you know, again, it, it, it's just part of one of many things that have changed, and it's going to take a little time, I think, for teams to adapt. Yeah, and I think, you know, there is a part of me that and really enjoys the fact that it is a perspective change, not just for you know, guys like you and me who are covering this thing from a media side, but it becomes a big perspective change for the fans. And the fixation on, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but the fixation on when we get to the great conditions of the fall, seeing, you know, national records shattered, I think gives way to the fixation of who's actually better at this as opposed to who can actually just throw it down the hardest. And to me, that's a step forward for us. And I think that, you know, I don't necessarily think that the way forward is to like, is to you know look for the 340 mile an hour run for me mm-hmm. for, for our entertainment value i think the way forward is to actually by by putting the stakes up higher with these two qualifying sessions it really does kind of illustrate who's better at this than the other guy sure and, and we've already seen some um uh, so some interesting byproducts of this where you have some matchups first round that you might not normally have you know last week ron caps having to run matt hagan in the first round that's not something you you would you would normally see, and then even if you look at you, you take Matt Hagen, he goes from a, a fairly dominant performance in the first indie event to you know barely qualifying in the second, but then on Sunday the team puts it all together, they go to the final round. So I think going forward you're going to see probably a lot more of that sort of thing where. Um, you know, you have some unpredictability there. Uh, you know, there's even a real, very real possibility that some top 10 teams, some championship contending teams might have to take a DNQ if we continue to have the strong car counts we've had. Yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, it's 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 the great duality of drag racing. My heart in one moment broke for broke for Clay Milliken, but it also it swelled for Todd Payton. You know, I mean, Todd Payton is as deserving as anybody in the drag strip to win the first round, and he was the number sixteen qualifier, and and he beat the number one qualifier in something that happens very rarely in our sport. But that again speaks to it. If Mike Clover and Clay had four qualifying runs, maybe what happened to them first round doesn't happen, but it did, and Payton won. Yeah. Yeah, for, for, for sure. And, uh, you know, again, 
the variable like that, I mean, typically the good teams will, will always capitalize on that thing. But when this is, I think, parity inducing, where yeah. you will probably see a lot more of the Todd Paytons of the world win rounds. Um, you know, and, and once you get to Sunday, anything can happen. So, so that opens the door potentially for some more surprise winners, some more first time winners. That uh, you've got really kind of a mixed bag going now, and and you know, I think that is great for fans. Um, you know, both live at the track and, and on TV, where. You know, uh, I don't feel like anybody really likes predictability. I, I think no. people want to see, see see things you haven't seen before, and um, you know, I we certainly are geared up for that sort of thing. I believe. Yeah, and you know, t- Top Fuel has been has been far more, I guess, wacky in that sense than Nitro Funny Car has, but it's uh, it's time you know shall come as well. Um, speaking of Top Fuel, I it was amazing to me and it's an illustration of just how difficult this sport is and how there is nothing handed or given to you that Tony Schumacher and Corey McLenathan won just as many rounds as Don Garlitz did over the last two races. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's uh, an interesting way to put that, but um, yeah. Yeah. And you conventional wisdom would tell you that you have two veteran drivers coming back with an established team that, that is, you know, arguably the most successful team in the history of the sport you would think it would be plug and play where they get in there, but it, it's not. I mean, there are still a lot of really good cars in top fuel and uh, in order to succeed, you have to perform. And, you know, for, for, for those two cars, they, I think they were just a tick off of where, you know, the team cars say Leah or Antron yeah. were. And, uh, it's, um, you know, hopefully both of them get a chance to come back and try again. I, I don't, you know. Yeah, my understanding for- is, uh, at least in cursory conversations with those guys, my understanding is that that, you know, nothing to be published at the moment, but both of them have uh, have made inroads into making that happen for the U.S. Nationals and supposedly for this third upcoming Indy race. So I, I want to see that too. Yeah, I mean, certainly, for, for especially for, for Corey's perspective, where, you know, he's looking to close the curtain on his career, and, and I'm sure he would like to do it with a performance that was much more representative of the success he's had um, previously. And then, you know, as far as Tony, obviously he still wants to race. Yeah. It would be fantastic to see him build a program for the future where this leads to some sort of a full-time ride, um, you know, either the rest of this year or even, you know, going forward in 2021. Uh, I think everybody would like to see the sports winningest top fuel racer come back full-time. Yeah. And, you know, I said it on the TV show uh, during the qualifying show when, when Corey missed it, um, there was there's maybe one other guy on the property that could have pedaled that car the way he did it. I mean, it was it was a it was a valiant and heroic effort inside that race car to try to get it down the track. And you know, he was rolling on and off the throttle three four times. I think we counted, and it was you know it's it's a heartbreak for everybody. But the guy is such a quality dude. He's out here, and it's just like. He, he he just has not been able to catch a break, and you know from the first round in the first race to that, and it, at some point, you know I don't know whether it's you know the sacrifice of chicken thing or the holy water thing. I don't know what it, <laughs> what happens, but I mean the guy has been just just snake bitten. Yeah, and and, and if you look at that run, you know, as you said, he he really did a masterful pedal job. You're you're facing a, a four seventy one bump, very soft. And you go 480. Oh, yeah. come on! You know <laughs> right, that, that he, right. that you, you couldn't have you couldn't have coaxed eight more hundreds out of that thing somehow. Some way. Yeah, it basically had to go like another four feet before smoking the tires the first time, and he would have been okay. Yeah, right. And, and, and you know, you you can never predict things that that might have happened. But if he qualifies on the bump, 
you know, we saw what happened with Todd Payton where he beat, upset the low qualifier, Clay Milliken. So it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see Corey not only qualifying, but maybe winning a round or two if, if things had just gone just a little bit differently. Yeah, and you know, the, the Zizzo team is doing what they always do, and I don't mean making finals because it's their first one, but, I mean, they show up, they're insanely professional their stuff looks great you know tony uh, tony pedragon who i work with in the booth obviously is a has an eye for paint he's a painter himself and so he is always complimenting the rustoleum car because it's a great looking dragster and Mm -hmm. here they are in their first final but is it only fitting that they have to wait six weeks to run it because it's taken them you know this has been the hard road to get here so why not just stretch it out another month and a half yeah, sure, sure. For 15 years, uh, why not Why not wait another six weeks? Um, you know, the amazing thing, uh, you know, if you know TJ, he really is, is very professional, doesn't operate with the slightest hint of ego, but he called his shot. Um, yeah. Friday when he got there, he said, you know, the way we ran last week, I am going to be really surprised if this car is not in the final. Um, so, well, that's not exactly, you know, a big point at the wall, it is, yeah, it's pretty bold for a guy like that who had never been in a final, but, but clearly he knows what that car is capable of. He knows, as you said, how professional the team is, and there's really no reason they shouldn't contend for race wins. Yeah, and and honestly, they were the team that was in my you know in my estimation uh, the kind of victim of uh, of Corey Max issues in the first race where the car just wouldn't get back to the starting line, and they sat there for what seemed to be two hours before they were able to leave, and they. One of the things, one of the probably the most telling moment of, of anybody that doesn't know TJ Zizzo, the way you got to know him was that top end interview after that happened because you could, I mean, you could just about see the steam coming off his head. He was so angry, but he was super articulate. He expressed himself in a way that was like, hey, that can't happen. And he explained why it couldn't happen. And when that interview ended, I, you know, I wanted to go down there and give the guy a high five because everybody watching at home knew that he wasn't happy, which is important, sharing the emotion, and then understood why it was a big deal. And I think so often when stuff like that happens, a guy gets out of the car and just rants and raves and no one really gets why. But he, um, as he normally does, did a great job there at the top end and didn't uh, you know, didn't fire his helmet over the uh, mellow yellow balloon. <laughs> sure, sure. And to, and to add a postscript to that, I had a long talk with TJ um, this weekend and, uh, specifically about that and basically told him what you just said, that I think the way he handled it was fantastic even though he was clearly frustrated but there were a couple of interesting things that came out of there um number one he said he, he did get uh, you know both a, a an on-site and a formal apology from Coymac and the Schumacher team that you know they they in no way intended to hold him up yeah um also he said that uh, um that he had um after further review the car did not run out of fuel it, it, it did cough the burst panel but he said, basically, we had a broken injector. And he said, I really did not want people to think that, you know, I was crying spilled milk that, hey, the car ran out of fuel and it blew up. And he said, if you really look at the video carefully, he says, that is not what happened. You know, he says, once we took it apart, we could tell that wasn't happened. He said, and, and I always try to be honest and upfront. He said, so, you know, th- that did not cost us lane choice for the next round. He said, it was something that was going to happen anyway. You know, still, he, he clearly felt like the car ran far longer than it should have, but that was not the cause of the issues they had at the end of the run. Neat. That's uh, that's got a cool insight because I had I had no idea about that. So that's actually uh, that's cool to know. Yeah, and and, and he was 
you know, again, he, I believe his quote was, you know, my parents always told me honesty was the best policy. So I didn't want people to think that, that I was just, you know, cr- crying the blues over something that, you know, was basically our fault. Huh. And, you know, the other side of the top fuel final is Justin Ashley, kind of the, I don't want to say the antithesis of a story, but, I mean, his amount, this is his, effectively, I believe, his 11th race or something like that versus a decade and a half we're talking about with TJ Zizzo making a final round. And what's so interesting to me is, you know, we've, Justin obviously is a, is a very competent driver. He's had some dazzling performances. And this was not particularly a day where he was on that, like we've seen him cut 20s and 30 lights almost at will, but that really wasn't who he was over the course of this day, and yet he finds himself in a final. Yeah, you, you do, uh, you know, in – and honestly, I think he's only, as far as top fuel, on about race number six, seven, okay. maybe. Eight. You know, I believe he still has eligibility for the rookie of the year this year. Um, but, but yes, uh, to your point, you do think of him for these amazing lights, but – uh, he was in the three rounds. He ran eliminations. He was in the fifties and sixties, which is competitive, right? But 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 not. You know, I, I don't believe he won around uh, on a whole shot. Correct. Uh, you know, just the, which is the kind of thing you might expect. Uh, you know, from a team like that going to their first final. But uh, you know, I think it's also worth noting. You know, he, he qualified fourteenth, so the car didn't get down the track either time during qualifying, which again goes back to our. Uh, previous discussion about the unpredictable nature of the two qualifying round format and you know what we're going to see the rest of this year you know i didn't want to say it on tv but i certainly thought it during the, his first round win when the thing dropped a hole at the hit and then picked it right picked it up again like maybe one second later i, w- I wanted mm-hmm. to say okay this guy's probably getting to the final because that never happens right <laughs> that, is, that is the thing that just never happens whatsoever so when when somebody has that type of good fortune that early in the day it's like nobody should be in another lane next to this guy because you're probably going to have the hex put on you yeah and, and you look at you look at the three cars that he beat on Sunday, you got Sean Langdon, Doug Coletta, yeah. and Leah Pruitt. You know, you have three top ten, you know, excuse me, top five cars. Um, so, so you know, you, you didn't have an easy draw in, in the group. No, and it, it speaks to it does speak to the fact that you know Langdon historically, you know, historically one of the best in the category, and then Doug, of course, is on a level that you know maybe one or two other guys will ever achieve, and then Leah in the short term anyway, over the last two races, really until she ran, Justin had been the best top fuel average lever in the category. She had been crushing the tree consistently 40s and 50s. And, you know, on the on the television show, we kind of set that run up against Justin as, you know, this is the test for her. You know, she's been good. She's been better than good against other people. But knowing what this kid brings to the table, now's when you have to really find the greatness. And, she was 100. She admitted she was. She admitted that she missed it. You know, it wasn't like she was running away from the fact. And these things happen. But I feel like for uh, for Justin Ashley, it's it's such an interesting place to be um, this early on in, in the going of his career. Yeah, I, I can speak from experience that, that sometimes hundred lights just happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I may have had one or two of those myself. Um, and also this uh, this top fuel final, it kind of begs the question where you have two guys that, you know, have to now wait six weeks. You, you think, what, what's, what are they going to be thinking for the next six weeks? What, you know, you go to bed every night playing potentially the final round in your head of what you're going to do and, and your game plan. And, uh, you know, you, you've got what, what is, well, not even arguably, the, the biggest round of your life coming up, and you have all the time in the world to think about how you might handle it, how your opponent might handle it, 
um yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating when it finally happens. Yeah, and also just on the on to put a to put a point on it on the the second tier you know level of the story is on the tuning side of it. You have Aaron Brooks with Justin Ashley, and you have Mike Kern, who is the crew chief of record on TJ Zizzo's car, and who ultimately sends it down the racetrack. But also Ron Tobler has a hand in that team and has had a hand with that team for for many years now. And if I'm going to swing from one side of the tuning spectrum to another, I'm going to go from Ron Tobler and Mike Kern all the way over to Aaron Brooks, right? And, they, and these, sure. are, these are not two guys that approach this sport with the same basic philosophy. Correct. And you would also think that the, the delay, I, I don't know if this delay favors one team over the other, but, you know, the run that you just pointed up where Justin Ashley's car came up and, you know, had a cylinder out, and yes, it did clean up. They did make, you know, somewhat of a competitive run, but you would have to think if there was an issue there to be found, they now have time to look at it, address it, and the next time that car goes down the track, you know, hopefully have it fixed. Yeah. Whereas, you know, when you look at Zizzo, that, that thing pretty much ran like a Swiss watch all day. Uh, you know, no reason to think they couldn't have come up immediately for the final and done what they'd done all day, which was a low 380 run. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, again, and, and you know, we don't know in six weeks, I would imagine you're going to have similar air and track conditions so that may not be a factor but again who knows things things could be different and if there's one last topic i want to i want to touch on again we'll stay with top fuel is don't look now but i mean doug coletta has a significant points lead and it's not even over steve torrance anymore he's he's steve's uh, in the third spot right now billy's ahead of steve and leah's in the mix as well but um you know doug's triple digits up on the up on the second place car right now well, do, do you dare compare Doug Kalita to, to the Chicago Cubs of just, you know, you, 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 you've gotten close, but something, you know, whether it's a Billy Goat or the, the Bartman ball, you know, some, some something always seems to happen. Um, but, you know, in 2016, we did see the Cubs win the World Series. So maybe just this year, as crazy as this season has been, you will finally see Doug Kalita get his – uh, long-awaited and well-deserved world championship. And, you know, clearly that's been the best car all year. Uh, if he just continues to do what he's been doing, um, uh, you know, I don't think it matters how many races we have. Uh, I, I think that, uh, yeah, he, he just needs to keep on going. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I've not seen the level of consistency. No one's seen the level of consistency out of that particular car that we have seen this year. We've watched it come to this point. I mean, we watched it last year be very good and and run into um, kind of streaks, if you will, multiple week race streaks where you're like, man, this thing's he's going rounds, he's picking up points. But when we see that car now, I mean, this was the Lucas, the Lucas Oil Summer Nationals was the first race that he didn't make the final in this year. So um, definitely the work that being done by the uh, – by the Mac Tools and now Osborne team uh, with Mobile One has been has been spectacular. So, no, man, this is cool. I wanted to catch up and just kind of pick your brain on some of these topics. And um, I know we got a, a few weeks before we go back to Indy. We're going to run that weekend that we normally would have been racing in Denver. Um, the Denver race and Brainerd have been postponed. They have not been canceled. They have been postponed because there is some um, some glimmer of hope out there that we could actually run there later in the season. I know you'll be cranking the content for National Dragster. Can you give us any sneak previews on stuff you're working on? Uh, well, we've got a, a couple, you know, past things. We are going to cover last week's event uh, as we normally would, even though we haven't run the finals. Uh, we had a, a huge uh, Jeg Sports Nationals out in Columbus last week, so we're cranking away on results for that. 
Um, you know, that, that was a fantastic event with over 600 cars. Uh, we've also got a really pretty cool feature coming together for this issue with uh, the young kids of Pro Stock. Uh, they're not all nice. young, but, no, that's but you've, cool. had a, you've had a nice influx of about a half dozen, you know, 30 or younger guys that, um, you know, really seem like they're prepared to take the class into the, the, the next decade and beyond. And, you know, for, for, for an eliminator that's kind of been battered around a while and, and you know, people have thought it's on its last legs, um, it, it has been quite a quite a resurrection for uh, Pro Stock. Yeah, that's exactly the truth. And I think it's like anything else. It's the 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 club that the club that has a line out in the front of front door or out down the sidewalk in front of it is the club that people want to be in. It's, it's when the place doesn't have a line and no one's paying attention to it is when people think it's not cool. And when you have, like, these second-generation guys that are coming in and girls that are going to make making their starts, hopefully, too, um, that's where you start to build that line on the sidewalk. And people go, okay. Because I feel like there is – you know, there was that period where we lost that all the sports and racers want to be pro-stock drivers thing, which was the way it was forever, and we lost that. Sure. But – I think when we look at Mason McGahey, we look at a Kyle Koretsky, we look at a Troy Coughlin Jr., what are we seeing? We're seeing the sportsman racers that want to be pro stock drivers, so that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and fortunately, you, know, you have uh, the, uh, the the metric of pro stock has changed where you can now get in. You know, it's never been cheap, right? But you know, you don't have to do your own engine program. You know, there there are programs out there for at least. And really, the cost is, is actually, you know, they, they say things don't get cheaper, but compared to five to seven years ago, uh, it is actually significant cheaper to do a, a postdoc program. So, you know, hopefully that will entice some other guys um, maybe to come over, if, you know, if you've had some success, say, in top sportsmen and are looking to step up. Um, maybe this is your opportunity. Awesome. Kevin McKenna of National Dragster, thanks for being a part of the NHRA Insider Podcast. Look forward to checking out your work in the Dragster and look forward to seeing you again in just a couple weeks when we come back in August to uh, Lucas Oil Raceway, Indianapolis. Yep, happy to do it. You know, as I tweeted, I said, if you've ever been to the U.S. Nationals and thought to yourself, this is so much fun, I wish we would do it three, four times a year. <laughs> well, in 2020, you've got your wish. Uh, Indy's open for business. we got two more races scheduled, so I hope to see everybody there. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Always love talking to the NHRA's Kevin McKenna, a great reporter for National Dragster and has been for many years and a guy that has a load of experience in the sport in all different facets. So pretty fun episode today. We can't wait to be back next week with another episode of the NHRA Insider, continuing to delve into the stories from our last couple of races and kind of looking forward to what the situation will be like going ahead. And the interesting thing about 2020, whether we're talking about drag racing or uh, anything else, we have no idea what it's actually going to look like going ahead any more than just maybe a few weeks from now so we're going to continue to watch this situation right now the nhra is scheduled to be back in indy august 8th and 9th following that up we're supposed to go to topeka kansas then atlanta georgia and then back for the u.s nationals to indy so if it stays that way we'll all be very happy if it doesn't stay that way we'll all accept the fact that it's 2020 and we'll shuck and jive the way we need to to make it all go down in the safest and best way possible for our racers our fans the crews and everybody else involved in the sport thanks for listening to the nhra insider podcast we'll be back next week with another show about the world of NHRA championship drag racing.